0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton. Welcome back to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge of Wharton website. We're here today with Wharton finance professor Itamar Drexler. He's going to talk to us about his new research, which focuses on bank deposits as a form of monetary policy. Itamar, thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you very much for talking to me.
0: In one of your papers, you propose and test a new channel of monetary policy. Can you explain what that is?
1: Yeah, so uh, the the question of how uh, exactly uh, monetary policy works is uh, one of the central questions of uh, macroeconomics. Uh, maybe a little bit surprising given that it's been so studied for so long and used that we still don't agree on what is uh, any channel, let alone potentially all the channels. And the channel we uh, suggest there is one that goes through the financial system through the banking system. Um, The idea is that uh, when the uh, central bank, in the US case, the Federal Reserve, raises the short rate, in their case, the federal funds rate, uh, then banks react to this in a way that isn't completely uh, competitive, it's uh, got a, a form of kind of monopolistic power to it, they don't raise the interest rate that they pay on savings deposits to people by the same amount that the central bank raises the short rate that uh, that uh, that exists in the competitive market that banks lend to each other or firms lend to banks. Uh, so they don't raise it by as much. In fact, uh, you can see clearly in the data that they raise it by only about uh, 35 to 40% of whatever the, the, the central bank raises their rate by. And what that means is that they get to charge depositors a big spread, so they make a lot of money off of this, but that by itself wouldn't give you kind of a channel. What gives you a channel is that while most people uh, don't observe this or are insensitive to it, which is why the banks can do it, some people then pull their money out of deposits, uh, and since deposits are a very, still a central source of funding for the banking system, as they pull s- some of the money out of deposits, they shrink the amount of funding available to banks, which in turn causes banks to have to contract the amount of lending, the amount of assets that they buy. And that has uh, a very large uh, effects in terms of quantities because there are about $10 trillion worth of deposits. So even if only 10% of deposits... Uh, move out when the spread on them rises. When the price of holding them, in other words, rises so much, that's a very big effect, even for the economy as a whole.
0: Now, how did you test this?
1: So we have a number of tests in the paper. That's probably one of the main strengths of the paper. Hopefully, besides what I think is a novel idea. So the one of the so you can see if you look at aggregate data, meaning you look at how much deposits are in the banking system, you can you can see that total deposits move inversely with the. Uh, With the fed funds rate but there are all kinds of different deposits some of them are more retail like uh, and therefore more affected by this than other ones Uh, so if you look only at say savings deposits from retail people then you can see the effect very strongly but the problem with this is uh, so that's 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 suggestive but it doesn't tell you whether it's the channel that we have in mind it doesn't for example one thing that you would think about is maybe uh, when the fed raises the interest rate. There's simply less economic activity, and the banks don't want to borrow these deposits. And it's not because they're trying to charge people a higher spread in order to make sort of more monopoly-like profits. Uh, It's simply demand-induced. And that's a very difficult problem always in the monetary policy studies to solve, whether it's pushed by demand or supply. And the the interesting way that we had to solve this problem is that we looked at uh, branches, With some many banks have many branches. We looked at branches within the same bank that are located in different areas that are more or less competitive, judging by how many other branch branches of banks are in the area. And so, areas where there's a lot of branches of banks are likely to be more competitive than areas where there are fewer ones. There's a very standard measure that uh, is used by regulators as well that of concentration of bank branches in an area. And what we showed is that areas where uh, the banking b- bank branches are more concentrated, and so it figures that there's less competition, uh, they raise their interest rates by less. In other words, they raise the spread between their interest rate and the competitive interest rate available to institutions by more. And in those areas, that's true even when you look at branches within the same bank. So uh, within the same bank holds the, the bank's overall demand for funding Constant and just, you know, because they can move funding from one branch to another one, and just thinks about how the bank reacts to competitiveness in different areas. And we show clearly that areas that are less competitive, you see the spread going up by more, and there are more deposits flowing out of those branches than for the same bank in areas that are more competitive. So, um, That's just to really what's called identify the effect. Uh, Although we don't just care about branches of the same bank, we care about all banks put together. Nevertheless, to really tease out whether what is happening is what we're suggesting, you have to do exercises like this. So that was a very uh, clear, effective exercise because it's really hard to think of any other reason why uh, branches of the same bank would would, uh, raise spreads or rates by different amounts.
0: And now why is it important for players in the area of monetary policy to understand this?
1: So the, the, the really uh, interesting or uh, frightening thing about monetary policy, depending on your point of view, is that it's the main, you could say that it's one of the main things economists do, is that by running the central bank, they change the interest rate, which has huge effects on the economy. But as I mentioned, we actually don't really understand how it works. I mean, maybe some people have the view that they understand, but in general, there's no Very clear consensus. There's kind of a standard workhorse model that people believe is in effect, but it's also clear that this model has a lot of shortcomings. It doesn't really work through the financial system, sort of mostly ignores the financial system. It doesn't have much effect on uh, direct effect in the model on – on uh, the holdings of financial institutions. but And yet the market really, I think, believes that, that this has an important uh, effect on the whole economy and the financial system in particular. And so it seems very important to understand how it works since we're using it and it appears to have effects. Why does it have effects? What do those effects depend on? Are things going to change that make this policy less or more effective? Uh, and how does it affect things like uh, you know, in the business cycle, investment in real estate or the kind of uh, securities or things, how much risk people uh, take on. So it's just, a, you know, it's, it's like understanding the basic mechanics of how the economy works.
0: And why is it important for consumers? Like, are there implications for them?
1: There are cons- like household finance implications. That's not our main focus. I mean, a clear household finance implication is that one. Of, in our opinion, one of the main building blocks on which the banking system is built, perhaps the main one, is that well, banks provide very safe. Uh, deposits for people, mainly because they're backed by government insurance. But at the same time, this gives them the power to charge households very large spreads. So the kind of spreads you see banks charging depositors are as large as the spreads you see anywhere else in financial markets maybe bigger. That is, if the short-term interest rate was raised to, say, 4%, uh, banks would only pay about 2% on deposits. So they're $10 trillion of deposits, and you have 2% per year you know, that's a tremendous amount of money. So it's $200 billion a year that, that consumers aren't getting. Now, they may, probably get other services from the bank in return, and then they get the safety and the bank branches. Uh, so that's from the point of view of consumers directly. More generally, as I said, it affects the economy as a whole. Um, and so, in, in less direct but no less important ways, it's just fundamental to what we think is going on.
0: Now, you also examine in another paper deposits to the lens of banks' exposure to interest rate risk. How do, can you explain that?
1: Yeah, so that was, uh, co- comes out of thinking about the paper I just described, which – so um, if, if uh, the short-term interest rate has a str- such a strong effect on, on what banks do in their business – on how many deposits they have versus the ones that flow out and on the rates that they charge, then it you know, it, it comes back to a fundamental question, what is their interest rate risk? So if the textbook model of banks is that, that you that you read about or students get taught is that banks, everybody knows that banks borrow short-term, mostly from depositors, and then they make longer-term loans. They make loans to households through mortgages and make loans to firms that are not so short-term. And so the view was that uh, this is fundamental. This is what they do. It's called maturity transformation. And they earn the difference between the rate they charge for long-term loans and the rates they pay on short-term loans. Uh, But that this introduces a basic risk uh, for example, one that came up in the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s and early 1990s, that if rates rise too fast, then, uh, then the, the rates they'll have to pay to raise the deposits will become higher than the rate they locked in on their long-term loans and that this could send the banking system into trouble. Some people believe that this is really fundamental to all banking crises. And uh, what we showed is, that in fact, they have very, very little interest rate risk. And it, the reason is, is, it is, while it is true that they have this difference between long-term loans and short-term borrowing, the deposits, because they don't increase the rate that they pay very much— uh, sort of work like long-term uh, financing, because they really aren't changing the rate all that much. If it was long-term, then the rate would be fixed for a long time. Here, it's not actually fixed legally, but in practice, they don't change it that much. And that works like long-term financing, so that they're able to to sort of not be exposed to interest rate risk, um, despite the fact that on paper, it would look that way. Uh, and so that explains why even though interest rates have changed tremendously over time, they went up a lot from the 1950s to the 80s and came down a lot, we haven't seen episodes where interest rate risk per se induced banking crisis, aside from the exception of the savings and loans, which is kind of the exception that explains the rule, I think. Uh, that's maybe a discussion for a different point. But, um, but that, if you kind of understand it, is is really the one time where a small group of the banks got caught by surprise. If they didn't have deposits to shield them from this, we would be seeing that kind of thing all the time.
0: Now, what does this say about banks and how banks are operating in the health of banks and the economy?
1: Uh, so there are pe- a lot of people that have posited that, for example, one of the main channels through which uh, central bank policy works is by affecting this interest rate risk of banks. We're saying that that's not the case. So we, we think that uh, so long as the fundamentals of deposit banking don't change, and they very well might, might now with electronic cash uh, you know, ele- being able to transfer electronically and uh, different uh, developments and in, in, in technological developments in how people do banking. It could, but like holding that for a second constant, if the deposit franchise of banks doesn't change, then interest rate risk is not the risk that they're exposed to. They have been exposed to credit risk uh, such as in the in the mortgage crisis. Uh, some people think about it as maybe liquidity risk, but it's not the interest rate risk. So all this work that's been done on that we think is, is sort of misguided. And also there's a lot of discussion of forcing banks to only make short-term loans, which is called narrow banking. There was a lot of propositions like this after the financial crisis because they were concerned that long-term loans and short-term financing is what caused the crisis. We're saying that's not it. It's, it's, it is it is probably the credit risk that was associated with mortgages. And making banks be narrow in that sense actually could be counterproductive because their deposits function like long-term funding. And so making them hold short-term things would actually create a mismatch where there was none to begin with.
0: Now, drawing on your previous answer, what do you think will be the impact of introducing all of these new banking products into this industry?
1: The straightforward answer would be that that they lose their ability to charge these high spreads on deposits, which would fundamentally also impact their ability to make long-term loans for the reasons I just described, and potentially could change the banking system tremendously. Of course, they don't like that, and they are trying to you know, sort of co- co-opt the system, and as they should, given that that's their business but we've seen uh, developments before that suggested that this could happen if, for example in the 1970s they developed money market mutual funds to be able to uh, lend be able to borrow from people pay them higher deposit rates and while that's a large uh, industry it still has not Uh, eliminated bank's deposit franchise. Uh, Over this time, we've seen very healthy growth in bank's deposit franchise. So both of these parts of the system are big, but it didn't get rid of the banks. And then maybe 10, 15, more than 10, 15, 20 years ago, we had internet banking. For example, I have an E-Trade account. And they also, potentially, by getting rid of branches, could have paid people... Uh, rates that are completely competitive, but instead they act much like regular banks, maybe slightly more competitively. So I think the demise of the deposit franchise has been predicted before and hasn't uh, come to fruition. And so I hesitate to sort of predict what would happen this time. There's just something about the bank branches and also not large banks people think are safer that will make it, uh, I think you know quite difficult to to, to change the situation, and uh, whether it's desirable or not is a separate question.
0: well, do you even think that's the case with automation and introducing machine learning and AI into the mix because I think a lot of banks would almost prefer that you don 't talk to a human and go to a branch these days
1: uh, so all these things are you know operational things that could help them to to make the system their system more efficient, and for the first time in a long time they 've stopped increasing the number of branches. But the question fundamentally is whether people find value and pay for uh, the deposit franchise of banks, whether it's branches or the other services the bank provides, the name of the bank, the the marketing of it, the, the government guarantee. I have to say that I don't know what it is among all these things. I can just see the effects that are pretty clear. In some sense, um, the, all the tools are out there for people to sort of try to move their deposits in a way that would keep things competitive. But for, I think for most people, it's just it's not worth it. There's uh, a lot of paperwork that needs to be done because because you're supposed to be protected from you know potential issues with your savings accounts. It's the most fundamental thing people have. And that is a double-edged sword. It keeps you safe and it, it allows for the government guarantee. But on the other hand, it means that you don't just move your deposits every day to whichever place offers the highest rates. And as a result, the market settles into a kind of equilibrium where nobody pays particularly high rates at all.
0: And what are some other future lines for your research? Uh,
1: I, I also do research in completely different things. Maybe I'll describe something as completely different from this. Uh, so I'm very interested in understanding uh, you know, differences in uh, the kind of returns people make across different stocks. This is a very active part of uh, financial research, in particular what people call anomalies, which is where you can predictably make higher average returns on some stocks, uh, for example, value stocks relative to growth stocks or stocks that have had recent high returns or stocks that have, for example, a lot of distress risks seem to have particularly bad returns, um, even though people know they're distressed and my line of research there is 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 trying to understand the a part, portion of the market that's been hard to study which is one where people borrow these shares in order to short sell them meaning to bet against them it's been hard to get data on how hard it is to borrow these things you typically have to pay a rate for them for most stocks it's very low but there's a nice segment of the pop, of the stock population where uh, you actually have to pay high rates, and um, since we've gotten this data, we've seen that these are the ones that generate particularly bad returns, and the theory there is that those are the ones that sort of sophisticated investors are, are paying money in order to borrow in short, while apparently unsophisticated people insist on continuing to hold these things despite indications that other more sophisticated people feel that their price is, is too high. And we've done some work on this, and the results there are very striking. Uh, because we have access to, these, to this data that, that before was kind of opaque and, and, and uh, wasn't available to people. I'm just very interested in that. Very market fo- unlike the first line of research I described, that's kind of very focused on retail people. This one is very market-centric. It's all about the interaction of sort of, you know, kind of shark-like, sophisticated investors versus apparently more simplistic investors.
0: Itamar, thanks for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much for talking to me.
0: You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's articles, podcasts, and more on our website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your other favorite podcasting app. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really does help like-minded folks to find the show. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.